All right, good evening, everybody. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. Now, last week, as we entered the second chapter of uh, 1 Peter, we said that it starts with the word, therefore, which uh, meant that Peter was now ready to make application to our lives based on the spiritual truth he had just gotten done presenting. And just what was that truth? Well, that we had been born again through the gospel and are now new creations in Christ. And as such, we are now to live that new life out in our daily lives because that's what it's all about. God has put light into us and we are not to hide it under a bushel, as Jesus said. We're to go out there and let our light shine, which means start living like genuine, authentic Christians. And so that's why he begins chapter 2 with the words, Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. We studied that last week. I'll just remind you that the term laying aside in the Greek is a command. It's a term that was often used of stripping off soiled or filthy garments. And that's what the old life is. We were clothed with the old man, as Paul put it, and now we are to put on the new man, which is created in, in Christ. Uh, we are to live a new life. The old life is gone. It's dead. It's not gone, unfortunately. It should be. But uh, part of what it means to grow as a Christian is to really start, by God's grace, laying aside. And it's not something that happens automatically or else Peter and Paul and the other wouldn't say, you know, actively lay it aside, commanding us. If it just happened automatically, well, then it wouldn't be an issue, right? But uh, just because we have newness of life and the Spirit of God inside of us, the point I'm trying to make, doesn't mean we automatically live like Spirit-filled Christians. Now, there's a war inside. Paul talks about this in Galatians. The uh, flesh is fighting against the Spirit, the Spirit against the flesh. These two are in constant opposition so that the things we want to do as believers, we don't always do. But if we walk in the Spirit we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So that's an active thing that we have to actively go on the offensive, to walk with God deliberately, intentionally, continuously, and as we do, well, the flesh will not be able to control us anymore. So put off, strip off the old life, like a filthy garment. In verse 4, Peter says, Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, talking about Jesus, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house. Again, let me stop there. We talked about this last week as well, that uh, as Christians we are the temples of God. We are the temples of God individually. We are the temple of God collectively or, you know, uh, together. So we are the temple. God doesn't dwell in a, a house made with brick and mortar, we said. Uh, God dwells in the hearts of his people. He dwells in his corporate church. And then Peter goes on to, to uh, call us at the end of verse 5, a holy priesthood, a holy priesthood whose ministry it is to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So as New Testament believers, guys, we are both the temple of God and the priests of God. Now, if you were Jewish, this would really hit you like a ton of bricks. Unfortunately, we don't have that same context that they had. They grew up, talking about folks back then, they grew up with the temple. They grew up with the priesthood, okay? I mean, what Peter and the other apostles uh, in the epistles uh, are saying to us, and Hebrews is a big one for this, okay? You can reread the book of Hebrews. But the new covenant is a substantial, monumental change from the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. And in that the priesthood back then was limited to one family, the family of Aaron. And only the family of Aaron, as priests of the Old Covenant, could, you know, serve God in the temple by offering him sacrifices and then come directly into God's presence in the holy place, that first compartment. The second one was the holy of holies. But then only the priest could come into that first compartment, the holy place, where he would burn incense on the altar of incense, that golden altar before the curtain that led to the most holy place. And there he would offer prayers for the people, uh, intercessory prayers. See, under the old economy, they alone were worthy, the priests were, only they were worthy to become 
the go-betweens, the mediators that bridge the gap between God and man, the gap that sin had opened. We were originally created in perfect fellowship with God in the garden, of course, man. And, of course, when they uh, Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, they fell and this gulf was opened up. Man and God were separated. Our fellowship was broken. Now, God instituted a uh, the old covenant economy whereby we, through the blood of... Not we, but I'm talking to as God's people. Uh, we, as the people of God back then, the blood of goats and bulls would temporarily cover their sins and allow them to have access or fellowship with God. Everybody knew. When the law was given, I think it was Exodus 19... God said only Moses is to come up on top of Mount Sinai to receive the terms of the covenant. And uh, everyone else, stay back. Uh, you don't want to come close. In fact, if you touch the mount uh, at its base, you'll, you'll be struck dead. And of course, nobody would want to get close to that mount because if you read the story again, uh, there were thunder and lightning and earthquakes and the people were terrified. What was God saying? Under the old economy, Moses was up on the mount getting the law, under the old economy, people were not worthy or able to come to God in close fellowship. They needed a go-between, a mediator. The priesthood were the bridge. Latin word for priest means bridge builder. So the priests back then were the ones who bridged the gap that sin had separated between God and men. And, uh, but even then, as we know, that uh, even the priests themselves couldn't go into the most holy place into the very throne room of God on the earth. I mean, only the high priest could do that. And then only once a year on the Feast of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and only then after many, many sacrifices and ceremonial washings to make sure his sins were atoned for. Now, all of that changed under the New Testament economy. I mean, when Jesus died on the cross, just before he dismissed his spirit, he said, it is finished then he bowed his head, dismissed his spirit. At that very moment, we read in the Gospels how the veil of the temple, this wall of cloth, 12 to 18 inches thick, uh, it was just a wall of a cloth that separated uh, man from God. The veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. It was God's way of saying that Jesus, as the mediator of the, of the new covenant, had bridged the gap between God and man, listen, once and for all. And now through the blood of his sacrifice, all believers in Christ were worthy to approach God directly. We didn't need any longer a formal priesthood made up of one particular family or a special group of men. Every Christian was now considered a priest and a minister of God. Turn to Hebrews 10. And I know this is familiar territory for most of you here, but it's something we really need to understand and really need to Rejoice in. Again, if you were a Jew living back then, the idea that anybody, even Gentiles, could come into the presence of God as only the priests could do under the Old, Old Testament economy, you were, you were shocked, if not horrified. How was that possible? Well, through the blood of Christ, those who were afar off have been brought near. Now, I'll read to you Hebrews 10, starting with verse 19 out of the NLT which says, And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter, into he enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere, with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. And so that's just a way of saying, look, we have been cleansed. We don't need as the high priest to cleanse ourselves outwardly many times over to go into God's presence. Jesus did all that. He cleansed us with his blood. And now anytime we want, we can come boldly into the presence of God. And uh, make our request known at chapter 4. We can come boldly into God's presence to receive grace and mercy to help in whatever situation we're going through. Right into the presence of God. Again, we take that for granted because we were never under the Old Testament economy. But for them, that was revolutionary. It was, like I said, it was monumental, a, a change. And um, it's, a, it's a blessing that we use far too 
consider far too lightly and don't use often enough. I'm talking about getting into the presence of God. But back in verse 5, Peter doesn't just call us priests, guys. He calls us a holy priesthood. Now, as we've talked about, the idea of being holy would include being morally pure, just as God is morally pure. If you back up to chapter 1, verses 14 to 16, Peter talked about this as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, God speaking now, be holy, for I am holy. So that word, of course, would carry with it the idea of, of moral purity, but if we're going to get really literal, the word holy just literally means to be set apart, to be set apart. In the Old Testament, the priests were considered holy. Uh, that was supposed to imply moral purity. It wasn't always the case, unfortunately. But, but the real idea behind the priests being holy back then was the idea that they were set apart. They had been set apart by God from everyone else on the face of the earth, really to live exclusively to serve, honor, and glorify the God of Israel. He was their whole life. He, he was everything. And the same goes, guys, listen, the same goes for the priests of the new covenant. We are to lay our lives on the altar of sacrifice every day and say to him, Lord, take my life today and use it for your glory. It's yours and yours alone. This then, guys, becomes the first, and listen, the most important spiritual sacrifice we offer to God as his priests, ourselves as living sacrifices. Turn to Romans, Romans 12. And again, talking about this concept, how that we are spiritual priests of the new covenant and we offer God spiritual sacrifices, the first and most important spiritual sacrifice we are to offer to him every day, really, is ourselves. And Paul said in Romans 12, verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. So the priests back in the Old Testament times, when they offered the sacrifices to God, it was a form of worship in many respects. The people were getting right with Him. Sins were being atoned for. The idea was, I want to get right with God so I can, I can get closer to God and so on. I want to worship the Lord. And Paul says, look, it's still the same today. Only we offer ourselves as Christians, as living sacrifices to God. This is our spiritual act of worship. Now, what are some of the other spiritual sacrifices we offer to the Lord as priests of the new covenant well the first one would be loving other christians turn to romans 14 verse 18 i want to show you something we're talking about now being spiritual priests offering to god spiritual sacrifices well what are they well after ourselves of course offering god ourselves the way we love each other in the body of christ really is a form of worship if we understand it to be such in romans 14 18 paul said for he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Now listen, when the scriptures say that by doing certain things, we offer to God something acceptable, well, uh, that's the language of a priest offering sacrifices to the Lord. And what are the things that are acceptable and acceptable offering to God? Well, if you go back and read chapter 14 of Romans, the whole chapter deals with not making a weaker brother stumble, not grieving a brother, not destroying a brother, and not judging a brother. And of course, this would apply to the sisters in Christ as well. And Paul is saying, guys, that if we are obedient in these things and hold other Christians in esteem, and boy, this is something we really need to, as the body of Christ, take to heart and to ask God by His grace to apply so much infighting and bickering and gossip and backbiting in the body of Christ across this country. May God give us grace to understand as spiritual priests what he wants us to offer to him is worship and part of that means the way we treat each other and paul is saying look if we hold other christians in esteem treating them with love and respect and consideration that is actually an offering like offering to god that is acceptable and well pleasing to him so loving other christians secondly winning the lost is really an offering 
uh, of a sacrifice to him. Turn to Romans 15. Paul said, starting with verse 15, he said, Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you because of the grace given to me by God that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God that the offering, listen, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So here, guys, Paul is thanking God for his grace that called him into the ministry. Paul says, I don't deserve to be in ministry. I'm chief of sinners. I persecuted the church of God. I did it ignorantly and unbelief, but God was gracious who called me into the ministry. And then he makes this remarkable statement. He said that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Paul is saying that his ministry of winning souls for God, the bulk of which in Paul's case were Gentile converts, was in God's eyes, Paul is telling us, a sacrifice offered to him that he joyfully accepted. I mean, that's a beautiful way to look at evangelism. That Every time you win someone to Christ, you're offering them to God as a form of worship, uh, a spiritual sacrifice that's acceptable to him. How about Philippians chapter 4? We read another spiritual sacrifice we offer to God as Christians. And that would be giving to those in need. Philippians 4, verse 17. Paul said, Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you. The church in Philippi had sent an offering for Paul's ministry, which allowed him to stop working uh, part-time to uh, devote himself to full-time ministry again. And he's uh, thanking them for that, but saying, look, I didn't really seek a gift from you. Uh, I appreciate it, okay? And here's what he said. He said, um, you sent me this gift, and it was a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Paul is saying that the Philippians, when they sent this gift of money to Paul to support his ministry, well... It was a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. That is the language of worship. That is the language of the priesthood. They offered these burnt offerings and other things, and it says the smoke ascended to the nostrils of God, so to speak, and they were a, a well-pleasing, uh, beautiful aroma to God. In other words, it was the fragrance of worship is the idea. You know, when we give someone a gift of money to help them in time of need, to God, that's acceptable. It's beautiful. It's a sacrifice. It, it ascends to him like a sweet-smelling aroma, as we said, like the fragrance of worship. Now, be careful. There's a caveat. There is always a caveat, okay? Be careful that you don't give to people who are lazy and not willing to work. That's not, you know, Paul says, if you don't eat, you don't, if you don't work, you don't eat, okay? First uh, Thessalonians, right? I think it was chapter 5. You don't work, you don't eat. So we can't Give, you know, well, they're, they're hungry. They're hurting. You know, well, why are they hungry? Why are they hurting? They're not working, okay? Now, if they can't work, totally different story. If they won't work, well, that's, you know, we don't want to support that. We don't want to enable somebody to be lazy. But the idea is if someone has a legitimate need and you can meet that need and you do it, God is saying, that's well-pleasing to me. That's the kind of thing I want to see among my people, that you love each other that you look out for each other, that if someone has a need and you can meet that need, you do that. And of course, this would especially applies in the case of Paul in the mission field. It would especially apply to taking money and giving it to those on the mission field uh, who are serving God in places that you may have a burden for but cannot go there personally. So you support the work with money, you pray, and God allows you to partner in the work, so to speak, so that on the day that the rewards are passed out, you'll be rewarded as if you were a missionary to China or some other place because you prayed and you gave. So guys, look, as priests of the new covenant, to kind of sum it up, the love you show for your brothers and sisters in Christ, the winning of souls for Jesus, the giving to others in need, all are a part of the spiritual sacrifices we offer to God as priests. Of course, we could add one more passage to the list. Turn to Hebrews 13. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, we read, Therefore by him, 
let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. So as we praise God and thank him verbally, a lot of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? And so if praise is coming out of your mouth and thanksgiving, it means your heart is full of God. It's just filled with the Holy Spirit, see? When your heart is not filled with God, when your heart is full of the world or self, then what comes out of our mouths is not praise and thanksgiving, is it? It's self-pity, it's putting others down, it's filthy language, off-color jokes. You can really tell what's going on in your heart by what comes out of your mouth. And Paul, who I believe wrote Hebrews, is saying, look, part of the sacrifice we offer to God as spiritual priests is praising Him and thanking Him in a world where people don't know God. And Peter's going to say this. The way we make Him manifest is by us going around praising and thanking Him. That others see what He's doing in our lives and how happy we are, excited we are, you know, how much we appreciate him and love him for what he's doing, is that just bubbles over. People see that, and they're, they're drawn to the Lord many times because they, they want something in their life to be happy about, to be rejoicing over, that kind of thing, right? But he goes on to say in verse 16, But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. So you can fill the blank about what that means. To do good to people, probably word or deed. To share uh, with others, you know, that again, uh, you know, maybe they don't have a super pressing need, like there's no food in the house. But in small ways, you can just share uh, things, and it just blesses people. Be a blessing is the idea. All right, back in 1 Peter 2, verse 6, Peter said, Therefore, it is also contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. Let me stop there. Once again, Peter, his words are very similar to what Paul said in Ephesians 2. I like it to turn there because I'm going to camp on this for just a few minutes. Again, building on this idea that. Peter, we talked about last week, how Peter says we're living stones uh, being built up into a temple of God and so on. We're not, God doesn't dwell in uh, temples made with hands, but in the hearts of his people. And uh, Paul, of course, is uh, saying the same thing in Ephesians 2, starting with verse 20. Having been built on the foundation of a... He's talking about the church now. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets... Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Now, we've talked about this, so I'm not going to you know, go into it again fully, uh, but in Ephesians 2.20, we have an important statement on the subject we're talking about. Paul tells us that the temple of God in the New Covenant, the temple of God in the New Covenant is the church, of course, has been built, as he puts it, on, a, on the foundation of apostle and prophet, apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now, when Paul talks about prophets, the prophets he's referring to, uh, were, of course, New Testament prophets, not the Old Testament prophets, because the Old Testament saints didn't know anything about the church it was a mystery hidden from them all right god didn't let them understand that uh until of course the apostles came and he revealed it to them but um paul is saying that god built his church on the foundation of apostles and prophets now be careful be careful not to misinterpret what paul is saying he isn't saying that the apostles and prophets were the actual foundation of the church because that would contradict uh, other passages that clearly teach that Jesus himself is the foundation upon which the church has been built. I won't have you turn to these. I'll just read them. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11. Paul said, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And then in Matthew 16, verse 18, uh, And Jesus said, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, Peter had just made the declaration that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Peter, upon this truth, 
I'm going to build my church upon what truth? On the truth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. This is what the church is built on. The church is not built on any man. It's built on God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. So if that's the case, what did Paul mean in Ephesians 2 when he said that the church was built upon the foundation of apostles and prophets? Well, it means, guys, that the apostles and New Testament prophets were divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit and given God's revelation for the New Testament period, the doctrine that the church was to be built upon. You remember in Acts 2.42, it talks about uh, the, um, the life of the early church and how simple it was, really. And at one point, it just says, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. I'll let you read the entire passage on your own, but the word doctrine simply means teaching. We know that. And so uh, they continued, the early church continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching. It's called the apostles' doctrine or teaching because it was revealed to them by the Holy Spirit, which means it was actually God's doctrine, God's truth, His teaching. His word that was given to the apostles who then taught it to the church. As we have said, the apostles moved around in more of an itinerant ministry. And they went around planting churches, um, giving the truth that God had given them to the Christians uh, spread around the known world. And they, they, they preached the gospel, they planted churches, and again, they shared what was called the Apostles' Doctrine, but it was really truth that had been revealed to them by the, from the Holy Spirit. It was God's truth, God's doctrine. Whereas the, the prophets were not like the Apostles in that, as the Apostles moved around in more of an itinerant way, the prophets stayed more local. They were the forerunners of our pastors, okay? They stayed local, although they did receive some special revelation from God. But uh, most of what they did was to explain and apply the doctrine the apostles had received from the Holy Spirit and then had passed on to the churches. Now, this doctrine, of course, was eventually written down and became the New Testament scriptures. Now, once the foundation of a building is laid, that's it, right? I mean, the workers don't keep laying the foundation. Once it's laid, their work is done. They're no longer needed. Ephesians 2.20, the church was built on the foundation of apostles and prophets again what does that mean it means they were given the unique ministry of receiving revelation from god revelation that became of course the new testament uh, that was the truth or the foundation the church was built upon new testament truth now when the completed canon of scripture was finished the canon of scripture means the new testament okay in this context when the new testament was fully given the foundation now was fully laid. The church had all the doctrine from God it was going to get. The ministry of apostles and prophets passed off the scene. I personally, and I know people would disagree, I personally do not believe the office of apostles or prophets is still around today. Because those that believe they are believe that we're getting new revelation from God. Now that's a very slippery slope to go down. When you start to believe that the New Testament is incomplete and that God is still giving doctrine today to certain individuals who call themselves apostles and prophets, well, I've heard some churches who claim what you have in your lap, especially the New Testament, that's yesterday's news. That's old revelation. And God's doing a new thing. God's giving new truth. And boy, when you listen to what this supposed new truth from God is all about, it's heresy. It's heresy because God is not giving new truth. God's given us enough truth. We're not walking in the truth he's given us already for the most part. So I believe the offices of apostles and prophets have passed off the scene. I do believe the gift of prophecy is still here. That's different. That's different, okay? You can go back into our study uh, in 1 Corinthians, I think, 12, and you can dig these out we talked about that but in Ephesians 2:20, once again it talks about how the church was built on the foundation of apostles and prophets jesus christ himself being the chief cornerstone now in paul's analogy of the church being the temple of god built on the revelation that god gave to the apostles and prophets he quickly adds that jesus himself is the chief cornerstone the cornerstone was the major structural part of ancient buildings. It had to be strong enough to support 
what was built on it, and it had to be precisely laid because every other part of the structure was lined up with it. If the cornerstone was weak or defective, the entire structure would be in danger of collapsing, and if it was crooked, every other part of the building would be off kilter and out of alignment. This is how important the cornerstone was. Now, I have heard some commentators and pastors try to say that the cornerstone was the last piece of the building, like a, uh, the capstone of a pyramid. Well, the capstone of a pyramid served no purpose except aesthetics. It just looks nice. It's window dressing, so to speak. Jesus Christ is not window dressing. A capstone on a pyramid is not essential. But Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone absolutely is. Don't fall into that trap of trying to, you know, people mean well, you know. And uh, I've heard stories, I remember several pastors uh, talking about this story. And uh, I, I used to buy into it until I did my own research, all right. How that, when they were building Solomon's temple, all the stones were quarried away from the temple site so that the noise of tools was not heard. It was a sacred place where the temple was being assembled, Solomon's temple. And so they were quarrying these stones a long ways away. And as the story goes, when it finally came time for the chief cornerstone, well, what happened was the, uh, the builders sent the chief cornerstone uh, early in the project, but it didn't seem to fit anywhere. They didn't know what it was. So they tossed it over on the side uh, somewhere, and uh, you know, weeds and stuff grew up over it and hit it. So that when the temple was just about done, they needed the chief cornerstone. They said, where is it? Sent word to the quarry, where, where's the chief cornerstone? We need it now. And they said, well, look, our record show we sent it a long time ago. And they searched around, searched around, and lo and behold, they found it in the bushes somewhere, and they dragged it out, and the stone that was rejected by men became the chief cornerstone of the temple. Nice story. Absolutely untrue. <laughs> Absolutely untrue. Sounds good. Except that would make the cornerstone the last piece not really necessary for the building. You, you get it, okay? This cornerstone was so important, as I said, the entire structure of the building would depend upon it. Again, if it was defective or weak, well, the whole structure that was built upon it would be in danger of collapsing. If it was crooked, every other part of the building would be off kilter and out of alignment. We know that Jesus is strong enough for the church to be built upon because guess what? He's God. Okay? I mean, as God, He is strong enough for His church to be built upon Him. We even sing on Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other uh, ground is sinking sand. Furthermore, we never need to worry about Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone being off in the sense of being crooked or untrue. And I'm using true in an architectural way. Okay, straight, true. We never have to worry about Jesus being off, crooked, untrue. As God incarnate, he is always faithful and true. As long as the church, guys, is correctly aligned with Jesus and his word, it will always be what God intended it to be, glorious and victorious. And, you know, that's so basic. You say, well, Phil, why would you want to bring that? It's so basic. should be. In the last days that we're living in, it's not something that's just automatic. So many churches are giving Jesus lip service. He is the window dressing. He is not really central to the church. He's just there to kind of get people to come in. And when you get inside the church, it's, it's all about everything but Jesus. It's all about spiritual mysticism. It's all about social interaction. It's all about whatever you, you know, psychology is the focus or some other thing. There are a lot of golden calves being worshipped in the church that have nothing to do with God, our God. And in these last days, we need to understand that only the churches that, and they might not be the biggest in the area, no doubt about that. But the churches that are focusing on Jesus, as Jesus said to uh, the church of Philadelphia, you have kept my word and have not denied my name. In my eyes, you're a great success. He didn't even mention numbers. doesn't matter. Numbers are irrelevant. The, the, what determines the success in God's eyes of a church is Jesus the focus, is the word of God being taught, is Jesus being proclaimed truthfully, is he the center? Because if not, your church is nothing. It's a social agency. 
this is what we need to understand in these last days. But again, as I said, as, as long as the church has Jesus as the focus, is properly, correctly aligned with him and his word, it's always going to be what God intended to be, victorious and glorious, right? Now, Satan knows this only too well. And he knows the quickest way to destroy the local church, and boy, he's having a great time doing this. The quickest way to destroy the local church is to destroy the foundation upon which it is built. Psalm 11, verse 3, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? If the foundation is destroyed, what can the righteous do? And as we just said, what is the foundation of the church? Well, Jesus, of course, but as we just said, though, the Word of God, right? Jesus is the Word, so it's kind of the same thing. Remember, the foundation was laid, the apostles and prophets, they received direct revelation from God, New Testament doctrine that became the foundation of the church that was, the church was built upon. Satan knows the Word of God is absolutely critical. It's absolutely essential. If a church is going to be strong and healthy it's because of the Word, if he's going to destroy a church, he's got to get them away from the Word. And guys, the foundations of God's Word, the foundational principles upon which it stands, are you ready? inspiration, inerrancy, infallibility, and sufficiency. Now, I'm not going to go into those tonight because we have talked about those four things at other times. If you're interested and you want to get into this deeper, uh, we did a study a couple years ago where we uh, explored those four things and then we talked about some other things. You can go online, uh, calvaryradio.org, and look in the topical section of the study archives to find a study called The Foundation of Our Faith. And we go into this in great detail, so I'll leave that for you to do. But back in 1 Peter chapter 2, again verse 6, Therefore it is also contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay, a, lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes in him, or on him, will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Now, guys, this is a quote from Psalm 118, verse 22, which is a messianic psalm, which prophesies of Messiah's coming, but also how the nation of Israel would reject him when he finally did come. Again, just as I said, the cornerstone was the most important part of a stone structure like the temple. The entire alignment, stability, and symmetry of the building depended on the cornerstone being listed, perfectly cut and perfectly laid on the foundation. Sometimes, from what I've been able to, to read, sometimes the builder rejected a number of stones that were earmarked as cornerstones until he found one that was perfect. Again, perfectly cut so that he could perfectly lay it on the foundation because it became now the everything else was going to line up uh, with the chief cornerstone and, of course, critical to the building of the structure. In Psalm 118, the psalmist prophesied that one particular stone, a stone, he says, that was initially rejected, would wind up becoming the chief cornerstone. Of course, that stone was Jesus. Remember we said it had to be perfect, a stone that was perfectly cut? Well, Jesus was cut without hands. Remember Daniel 2? Daniel sees a vision of a stone not cut with hands uh, that smote the image in its feet and grew up to be a, into a mountain that filled the whole earth. Jesus was a stone not cut with hands. What does that mean? He was virgin born. That means he was perfect. Perfectly cut out of humanity in the sense that he was uh, virgin born, the sins of uh, the sin would pass from the father to the children. Jesus didn't have an earthly father. Therefore, he was born without sin. That was important, of course, to the plan of redemption. No uh, person could die for sinners who was a sinner themselves. And so Jesus Christ, the stone that was perfectly cut and initially rejected by the leaders of the nation of Israel as their Messiah, turned to all who did receive him, both Jew and Gentiles, and became the chief cornerstone of the temple, the temple of God in the new covenant, which is the church. The temple of God in the new covenant is the church. Now, what would happen to the nation of Israel? They rejected their Messiah. Uh, turn to Matthew 21. Jesus talks about this very thing. So Israel rejected their Messiah. 
the stone that was rejected by the nation, Jesus Christ, eventually became the chief cornerstone of a new temple, the temple of God in the new covenant, the church. But what would happen to the nation of Israel? Matthew 21, verse 43, Jesus said, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. Peter is going to talk about that nation in just a moment. It's going to be given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Let me paraphrase. When it comes to Jesus Christ, there are two options. You can fall on him and be broken, receive him as your Lord and Savior and be saved. Or you can live an obstinate, rebellious life your entire life, and on the day of judgment, he will fall on you, so to speak, and crush you to powder. In other words, you'll be destroyed and sent to hell. This is something that a lot of people need to really, you know, if, if they will listen and contemplate it. But so many are living for themselves, living in rebellion, doing their own thing, okay? Proud, arrogant, nobody's going to tell me how to live, no God's going to be telling me what to do. And so they go their whole life and die, and on the day of judgment stand before him. And of course, they're going to be pleading like crazy to not to go to hell, but it's too late. If they would have fallen upon the stone when they were alive and been broken of self, rebellion, and humbly submitted to Jesus' reign over their life, they would have been saved. But uh, for many, it's going to be just the opposite, and they're going to stand before him, and he will fall on them in judgment and crush them to powder, send them to hell. Now, in verse 8 of 1 Peter 2, Peter said again, A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, talking about Christ, they stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. Now, guys, be careful here. Be very careful here. It's easy to do. There are many who interpret Peter's words to mean, and I'm going to quote what they would say, God has appointed some people to go to hell because he has withheld from them through his sovereignty the ability to believe the gospel. And that's why they stumble and reject Christ. God appointed them to it. It's called the doctrine of reprobation, which we've talked about. which simply means that in eternity past, before God made anybody, he chose that some he would make would go to heaven and the others he would make would go to hell without anyone having a say in it no free will basically we're just robots and god pushes the button and god says well i'm going to make x amount of people over the course of the centuries uh 10 are going to go to heaven because i decree it i appointed it and the 90 percent are going to go to hell because i've also appointed them to suffer the fires of hell reprobation you really want to get into this topic get the very first study we did in first peter Chapter 1, we talked about this all evening, basically, hitting it from different directions, okay? Uh, doctrine of reprobation, I, I thoroughly, thoroughly reject it. I believe that God has created all of us with a free will. And the fall didn't take that away. It did, of course, separate us from God and gave us a sin nature that's rebellious toward God. But it didn't mean man was incapable or woman was incapable of receiving Christ if they wanted to. And I believe that's what Peter's really saying. He's saying those who willfully reject the gospel, who willfully reject the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, they are appointed by God to stumble. Peter's statement to which they were also appointed, guys, refers back to the, to the entire preceding clause. They stumble being disobedient to the word. They want to be disobedient, therefore they stumble. God's not forcing anybody to do anything. As one author said, God has decreed that all who refuse to bow to the Lord Jesus will stumble. If a man insists on going on in unbelief, then he is appointed to stumble, end quote. Another says this, he said, and I quote, unwillingness to obey makes stumbling a foregone conclusion, end quote. And so Jesus Christ, though chosen by God, was rejected by the nation of Israel. Why? Because he was not the Messiah they were expecting. They were looking for a different Messiah. And that's why when Jesus came, they stumbled. What were they looking for? Why did they stumble? They were looking for a military leader. 
who would lead them in a revolt against Rome to overthrow the yoke of Roman oppression and bring Israel to a pinnacle like it was under Solomon and David, uh, where Israel would reign over the whole earth and uh, prosperity would abound and sickness would be eradicated because Messiah would make sure his people had the best of everything. That's what they were looking for. We want a general. We want a man who will lead us against Rome. And here comes Jesus saying what? Love your enemies. Show kindness to those that oppose you and persecute you. See, this was not the Messiah they were looking for. Jesus Christ came the first time, not as a lion to conquer, but as a lamb to die. He's coming again to be the leader the Jews were looking for, but that's going to be his second coming. And Peter tells us the real reason the nation of Israel stumbled was because, listen, it was because of their refusal to submit to the word of God. They studied it every day. Jesus told the Pharisees, you search the scriptures daily, for in them you think you have eternal life, but it is they that testify of me, and yet you refuse to come to me, that I might give you this life. It's amazing to me, a person can study the Bible their entire life and still miss it. It's what one of the apostles said, forever learning and yet never able to, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. I was reading a story about um, one of the commentators I really like who spent some time in Germany with a group of theologians who were all progressives. They didn't believe in the virgin birth. They didn't believe in, you know, the atoning blood of Christ. And yet he was amazed because as he sat there talking with these men, they had memorized large portions of Scripture and can rec could recite them from memory. Wow. They will receive the more harsh judgment because they knew the word but did not want to submit to the obvious teaching of the word that man is a sinner by nature see the liberal theologians don't like that no no god's a god of love god would never send anybody to hell that's just the hell is not really what you think it is okay it's a state of mind well you'll, people will find out unfortunately it's not a state of mind it's a real place that jesus didn't want anybody to go to that's why he talked about hell more than anybody else because he didn't want anybody to go there okay People can know the Bible and yet not take its truths into their heart and adjust their lives accordingly. Look, had the Jewish people believed and obeyed the word, then they would have received their Messiah and been saved. And the nation wouldn't have been destroyed in 70 AD. Of course, many people today still stumble over Christ and the cross. Turn to 1 Corinthians 1 quickly. This is not something limited to the Jewish people, although they still are primarily the focus of this stumbling Peter and then Paul talk about. 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul said, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. So anyone who thinks that a uh, carpenter from Nazareth could die on a cross and somehow save everybody from their sins, if a person thinks that's ridiculous, it's foolishness, you know where they're headed. They're on their way to hell. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then he goes on in verse 23 to say, you know, the preaching of the cross is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. A stumbling block to the Jews because they thought they were right with God by their sacrifices and things, so they didn't need the blood of Christ. And that pretty much would let Gentiles get saved. And I've been working all my life at bringing these sacrifices and keeping these feast days and holy days and everything else. I don't want to give up all the hard work I've invested all these years as, a, as an Orthodox submitted Jew. That's why it's a stumbling block to hear, well, anybody could be saved, just receive Christ, believe in him. They, the Jews stumbled over that. The word means scandalized. They were scandalized over that preaching. But of course, the, the, the Greeks thought it was foolishness. Okay, it's foolishness. They were the intellectuals. The intellectuals are always thinking the things of God are foolish. They're so smart, okay? And the Greeks were the epitome of those who were, you know, the intellectuals, and they just very proud, and so on. But you have a lot of those people today, very religious people like the Jews, who um, reject what the Bible says about Jesus, what it takes to get to heaven, because they're always trying to earn their own salvation. And for a lot of people, like the Roman Catholic Church, I mean, it's like Jesus and me, okay? It's Jesus and me. I got my armor on the Lord. Lord, we're going to do it. You did most of it. I got I to, gotta, you know, finish it up. Wrong. Absolutely wrong. Okay? It's Christ and Christ alone. God will not share his glory with another. Anyone who thinks they can 
say, move over, Lord, and let me sit down so we can both take credit for my salvation. It's not going to get to heaven. Read Galatians 5. Now listen, guys. God had chosen the nation of Israel in the Old Testament to be a kingdom of priests. Turn to Exodus 19. I don't know if you remember this when we studied Exodus. It kind of slipped my mind until I read it again. I'm thinking, yeah, I missed that. I taught on it. I have to go back and listen to what I said because I forgot. But, but this kind of slipped my mind. I, I forgot that in Exodus 19, verse 6, God is speaking to his people. And he said, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. Talking to Moses. I think Warren Worsby had some good things to add to this. He said, God wanted his people, Israel, to become a kingdom of priests. Again, Exodus 19, verse 6. A spiritual influence for godliness. But Israel failed him. Instead of being a positive influence on the, God, uh, on the godless nations around them, Israel imitated those nations and adopted their practices. God had to discipline his people many times for their idolatry, and they still persisted in sin. Today, Israel has no temple or priesthood. And so because the nation of Israel failed to be the kingdom of priests God wanted them to be, God created a new nation to fulfill the ministry the Jews failed at. Again, 1 Peter 2, verse 9, he said to his church, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter says you're a chosen generation. Just as God sovereignly elected, the word elected and chosen in the New Testament, same word in the Greek. Just as God sovereignly elected Israel to be his chosen people under the old covenant, and what was the purpose? To be a light to the world, to uh, represent God to the people of this world. But they failed at that calling, that ministry. Well, even as he sovereignly chose Israel in the Old Testament to be his people, he sovereignly chose the church under the new covenant to be his chosen people today. Ephesians 1 verse 4, you don't have to turn there. Paul says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. Now in the Old Testament, guys, the offices of king and priests were commanded by God to remain separate. You remember how when King Uzziah, transgressed the commandment of the Lord and went into the temple to burn incense to God as a priest, because only the priests were allowed to do that. Well, God struck him with leprosy, and he, was, uh, he um, spent the rest of his life in isolation, cut off from the people of God and the worship of God. God took this very seriously. God said, in no uncertain terms, the offices of king and priest we're always to remain separate. There's only one example in the Old Testament that I can find where one man was a king and a priest. Remember what his name was? Melchizedek. Very good. And Melchizedek was a type of Christ. You can read about this in Hebrews 7, uh, where it, the writer uh, brings it all up again. But um, Melchizedek was a type of Christ. Jesus Christ will be the ultimate king and priest. He will rule over the entire world as a king, but he is also our great high priest. And now that we have, we have believed in him, as Peter says, he has made us a nation of kings and priests. A nation meaning the body of Christ, basically, the church. He calls us a holy nation. As we talked about earlier, holy means to be set apart. To be a holy nation simply means that as the church, we have been set apart from the world to live exclusively for God. Someone has said our citizenship is in heaven, Philippians 3.20. So we obey heaven's laws and seek to please heaven's Lord. Israel forgot that she was a holy nation and began to break down the walls of separation that made her special and distinct. God commanded them to put a difference between holy and unholy, between clean and unclean, Leviticus 10, verse 10. But they ignored the differences and disobeyed God, end quote. Well, Peter goes on, we are his own special people. And guys, we are special because God purchased us 
with the blood of his own dear son. And Paul talked about that in Acts 20, verse 28. We are special not because of any inherent goodness or in us, right? We're special because God has purpose that we're special. Why? Because we've accepted his son, the blood of Christ has cleansed us of our sin. And now being special to God also means that God has put us in a special place of blessing. Israel was chosen by God, not because they were better than any other nation. God made this very clear. I didn't choose you because you were a righteous people. You were a stiff-necked and rebellious people. I didn't choose you because you were numerous, mighty people. You were a small and insignificant people. I chose you simply because I chose you. It's called sovereignty, sovereign election. And God chose them to be a light. But as his chosen people, they occupied a special place of blessing. They were the ones God gave his word to in the oracles of God. They were the ones that, again, you know, God held up to the people of this world. When he blessed his people, he said, look, I want you to be a blessing to the people of this world. It's only going to happen if you obey me. Because I want you to be an object lesson to everybody in this world who doesn't know me. That if anyone would make me their God, I will bless them like I blessed my people Israel. Special blessings. And Peter goes on to say in verse 9 that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. All of these are what Israel failed to be. All of these are the blessings God gave to Israel, but they didn't live up to. All the privileges that God has given to us carry with it one big responsibility, and that is revealing the praises of God to a lost world. And again, that simply means as we praise God for all that he's done in our lives, people see it, and hopefully they're drawn to him because of our light. Again, God wanted Israel to be a light in the darkness, a people who would live and proclaim his truth to a world full of the devil's lies. This is a world of darkness. Darkness in the scriptures is often synonymous with lies and uh, evil and so on. Uh, light is often synonymous with God's truth and uh, righteousness and so on. Jesus entered a world of darkness. The darkness tried to extinguish the light, but they couldn't do it. John chapter 1, right? The light came into the world, a world full of darkness. In other words, the truth of God invaded a world of Satan's lies, lies that started in the Garden of Eden with you shall not surely die, the basis for reincarnation. Uh, God knows that the day that you eat of the fruit of this tree, uh, your eyes will be open, you'll be enlightened, and you'll achieve godhood. My goodness, that's where Hinduism began, in the Garden of Eden. It's taken some time to evolve into what it is today. But in the Garden of Eden, you had God's truth and Satan's lies. And those two have been competing with each other ever since. Two information streams that flow through this world, and whatever stream a person drinks from will impact their eternity. If we drink of the living water of God's truth, we will know truth, and if we accept Christ, we are saved. A person who keeps drinking from the polluted wells of this world, Satan's lies is going to get so sick uh, spiritually, and, and maybe you've some, seen some people like this, they have drunk so much lies and deception, they can't even think straight anymore. It's amazing. They cannot even think straight anymore. I was telling somebody uh, a couple of days ago, you remember the Heaven's Gate cult? Remember that? They, were, they believed that uh, the mothership was behind the Haley Bob Comet, and they had to kill themselves to, so their spirit would be set free to rendezvous with the mothership and go home? Now we, we laugh at that. How tragic, right? Do you know, as I was watching a special on that group, the night before they committed, the night, the night they committed suicide, they went out to eat. Thirty some people, all dressed the same way, and they all ordered exactly the same dinner, including the same dessert. Now that's how deceived you can be. You become so brainwashed. You're, and, and I saw them. They uh, they uh, recorded themselves. Remember, if you saw the, uh, they they each got in front of a camera and talked about what they were going to be doing and how excited they were and how Christians didn't really understand the Bible, only they really knew it. That red flag, that, that's cult material right there, okay? Anyway, we live in a world dominated by Satan's lies. The truth is more powerful than lie. Light is, light is more powerful than darkness. But we have to proclaim it. We can't hide our light. we got to let it shine. we got to go out there and live authentic Christian lives. Don't be afraid. Israel failed to be that light in the darkness. And so God has raised up the church to accomplish that mission. And uh, we ourselves, and that's the beauty of God's grace, we ourselves were once in the darkness. We were once a part of it. 
For all the years before we got saved, we were right there drinking from the devil's lies. It affected the way we, we thought, our worldview, uh, what was um, important in life. And it was not people, it was things and pleasures and so on. And God at one point opened our eyes, called us out of darkness into this marvelous light. We got saved. And one of the things that we need to take seriously is that we need to be a light in this dark world. Turn to Philippians 2 as we bring this to a close. Philippians 2. I think Paul's admonition to the Philippian church is very practical and uh, very timely for us today. Philippians 2, starting with verse 14. He said to the Christians there, do all things without complaining and disputing. In other words, you know, serve the Lord without the bickering and the fighting and the complaining that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, clinging to the word of God, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. I want to stand before the Lord someday and have you stand next to me and the Lord say to you, well done, good and faithful servant, so I know I haven't run in vain. Now, in 1 Peter 2.9, the word translated proclaim is a verb that literally means to tell out or to advertise. One author put it this way, said, because the world is... In the dark, people do not know the excellencies of God, but they should see them in our lives. Each citizen of heaven is a living advertisement for the virtues of God and the blessings of the Christian life. Our lives should radiate the marvelous light into which God has graciously called us, end quote. And we'll end with verse 10. Peter says, Who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So if anyone is wondering, well, why, is Christ, why should we as Christians live this kind of life? It's hard. We're going to be ridiculed. We're going to be you know, persecuted. We're not going to be able to enjoy a lot of the pleasures the world enjoys. Why should we put ourselves through that? I don't know what real Christian would say that, but just hypothetically. Why? Because as Peter said, you were once not the people of God, and now you are the people of God. You were once a people who had no mercy, but now because of Christ, God has given you mercy. Look, mercy means not getting what you deserve. You know what? We all deserve to go to hell. We all deserve to go to hell. That's where if God was just with us, now he is always just, but what he did was he punished another in our place, his son. And that allowed him to show us mercy, extend his love to us, that we would not have to die in our sins and go to hell forever, but because of what Christ did, because of the mercy of God, he's offering us eternal life. Now, those of us who accepted it were Christians. And now, because of what God has done for us, we need to go out there and live for him. Plain and simple. I mean, none of this stuff is deep, profound truth you never heard of. But Peter's going to be the one who has said, I've told you this before, but let me put you in remembrance again of these things. The problem with us as Christians often is we forget the basics. We forget the simple things. And the simple thing is that Jesus Christ died for us, that we might now live for him as lights in this world so that others will come. Sure, John 3, many people don't like the light. You know, you live in darkness long enough and somebody turns on a bright light, it's painful. Uh, unbelievers, they like the darkness because their deeds are evil. They want to hang out with darkness. And here you come shining as a light. It hurts them. It, it, it convicts them. They don't like it. So they'll run or persecute you. But there are those out there who will be drawn to the light because they do want to know God. And they're looking for anyone who will tell them the truth. And your life, if it's lived properly in the world, will tell them you're authentic. You believe and practice what you, you, practice what you believe. Your life has changed. I mean, you know, this guy talks about Buddha and this guy talks about Muhammad, whatever. I don't see their lives really changed at all. I see you talking about Jesus and your life has changed. I want to know more about it. And so we who are born again are used by God to then help others come to our Lord. So pick it up next week in verse 11. And uh, Peter has some very interesting things to say as we progress in this epistle. So uh, stay tuned. Hang in there.
and come on back. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Your word is truth. And Lord, we cannot begin to thank you. Talk about praise and thanksgiving flowing from our lips. It ought to be a waterfall. As we look back at the life we once lived, the darkness we walked in, and now how you've delivered us from that darkness, brought us into your marvelous light, made us children of God, uh, put the Spirit of God in our hearts that we're now new creations in Christ. Lord, this is more glorious than we can even imagine, yet we take it for granted. Lord, give us grace this new year to discover these truths anew and to walk in them as if we've just heard them for the first time, rejoicing, praising you and thanking you for your great love wherewith you loved us, that delivered us out of darkness, eternal death, and made us children of God, gave us eternal life. Someday as Peter opened up his epistle, we will have an inheritance in heaven that is incorruptible, undefiled, fullness of joy, never fade away. Give us grace to keep our eyes on that prize. So, Lord, we thank you. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. In Jesus' precious name, amen.